Hi, welcome to Mark's Motivational Podcast for this Thursday episode with Orlando Zucchetto. Today we spoke about anchoring around the NLP anchoring. So I really enjoyed this episode. Thanks a million, Orlando, for coming on the podcast again. So I really hope you all enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Mark's Motivational Podcast for this Tuesday uh, episode. Or sorry, Thursday episode. <laughs> um, forgetting the days for a minute. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Orlando Zucchetto again. We're going to talk around the anchors. So you're very welcome along again today, um, Orlando. Hey, good to see you, Mark. And uh, great to have everyone listening again. It's good to be back. Great. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. So we'll start off the, the podcast today. Um, can you explain to the listeners what anchor anchors are, please? For anybody, for people that are listening. So, so what are anchors? Well, yeah. the, the, the term anchors comes from the process in neurolinguistic programming um, that is called anchoring. Yeah. Uh, anchoring is very much uh, seated in the, the realms of stimulus and response. Uh, does Pavlov's dogs ring a bell to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, ring the bell, the dog yeah. salivates, ring the bell, the dog salivates. Eventually, yeah. either feed the dog or ring the bell and the dog will bite you because dogs are sometimes smarter than humans. But um, in stimulus-response relationship, there is a stimulus, and it it creates what appears to be an automatic response. Now, in the realms of NLP anchoring, we're taking uh, the idea is to create a stimulus or trigger that's external to the person and create an internal response. Um, now, you can go further as well and have an internal trigger that creates an internal response, but we'll we'll keep it one step back to start with. Right. Um, so often, very often in NLP, uh, it's thought of or taught as in kinesthetic anchoring, that is anchoring with touch on the shoulder, on the knee, on the hand. And uh, by touching the person there, they'll magically have a response. Well, this requires something to be set up. That is the setting of the anchor. And to set an anchor, the first thing is to decide what what state, what mind and body uh, state uh, is the client most useful, uh, useful in that situation to anchor. And it may be a client wants to feel calm. Let's just use that as an example. So the first thing to do will be to have the client experience in the moment feeling calm. So their mind and their body are calm in that moment and then applying some kind of stimulus. Now, after applying the stimulus for whatever whatever period of time, few seconds, ideally when that state is on a bell curve on the upward fashion of the peak, waiting for someone to be calm and then waiting so long they get frustrated and then hoping to set a calming anchor, probably going to get frustration, not so much calm. Mm. But in that process and the upwards upwards movement of the bell curve, uh, providing a stimulus, it doesn't have to be kinesthetic, okay? It could be auditory, it could be visual, but involving one of the senses so that in the future, when that specific uh, trigger, that is the set anchor is repeated, then the response will come through. That is the desired effect. Now, um, in, in my view of the world, and we, we all have our own, um, we don't so much create, uh, when we talk about creating an anchor, we're creating that stimulus response uh, relationship. For most people in the world, and you can test, most people have had the experience of testing this out in public. If you're out at a bar somewhere or a social event and someone in the room calls out, hey, Mark, do you turn around? Um, I would, yeah. I would turn around, yeah. 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 And then sometimes you find out they're talking to the other Mark who you don't even know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's happened. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 the external uh, word Mark, that is your name, provides a response in you, an auditory uh, input, and you get a, a response. Your brain goes, well, maybe that's for me. You might turn around and have a look or to see what's going on. So that would be an example of an auditory ex- response or one of those songs that when you hear the song or you hear the chorus come on, just takes you back to a time when it reminds you of something else. Mm-hmm. And that memory stimulates a physiological or a visceral change in yourself. 
Now, for that reason, uh, anchors or anchoring um, doesn't is non-discriminative towards good or bad uh, mental state. It's up to you. Many of us uh, through our lives have learned stimulus response relations uh, with things that give us not such a good effect. Um, and that's where the process, uh, one of the areas that a process of NLP anchoring can come in to use one, one anchor to collapse another, which is by which having one physiological and mental state greater than the other so that you can overcome whatever was happening in the past. Uh, that, so you know, from whatever the stimulus might have been. But the, 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 the key to remembering it, oh, sorry, so you've got your visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory anchors. Um, some people, certain perfumes uh, remind them of a particular person. Uh, sometimes that's useful, sometimes not so much. Uh, the, you know, when we're talking about visual anchors, it can be something that you see that reminds you of and it creates an internal response. Um, it could be the way a person does a certain thing. So, for example, if a teacher in the front of a classroom stands in a certain place every time they want the attention of the class and whether they initially call out or somehow gain attention of the class, over time, the children become conditioned or the students become conditioned when the teacher moves into that very specific space and stands in a particular way, there's an expectation builds in the room that something's going to be announced. So uh, by that, that would be called a spatial anchor. We're, we're seeing the person do something. They're moving into a particular space. And there, there are a few points about it. Number one um, is when we are setting an anchor, as it were, we're really relying on the person's existing resources to re-elicit a state that they've already experienced by way of a memory or um, generally it is a memory where they think back to a time when they felt particularly good. And as they build up that thought, they build up that feeling and therefore you've got a state to anchor. Yeah. Now, after an anchor has been set, the idea is that that person or another person can fire the anchor, that is repeat the stimulus, and the person gets the response of feeling good or whatever, whatever state of mind and body that you're, you're uh, trying to achieve. So anchors in a nutshell, stimulus response, utilizing current resources and setting up a means of accessing those resources really quickly. Yeah, that's a great explanation, Orlando. Thanks very much. That, that's really, really, really explanatory. Thanks very much for that. Cheers. And the second question I was going to ask today was, um, what are the advantages for helpers using them in, in their practice, let's say, in your opinion? Excuse me. Well, there, there are a lot of advantages um, because you know, th this is not something that uh, someone made up and created in humanity. Yeah. It's something that was noticed and then uh, the, the model expanded to incorporate something human beings were doing and map process so that you can make it repeatable. For a lot of people, certain labels or places are very powerful anchors for, uh, that, that are not so useful, for example. Mm. Uh, one of those examples uh, would be, and very common, is the word dentist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, some people have somewhat of an adverse reaction to that, uh, which is kind of entertaining because you mention dentist and they start going, oh, but there is actually no dentist there yet. I'm presupposing you're not standing at the dentist saying it, um, which means that that word has an internal meaning for that person that creates a visceral response often very, very quickly. Mm. Well, for, for that person, for example, if they were to learn what this process is and how they can use it for themselves, they can find things for themselves with, on their own or with assistance that give them the kind of a response or the kind of phys physiological and mental um, uh, state of mind and body that they would like to have if they had to go to a dentist, for example, and they can create and build their own anchor for feeling calm, feeling relaxed, feeling confident, feeling positive, whatever to them would be the most useful resource or set of resources, they can anchor something or stack a few anchors together, which is literally combining 
uh, emotions and the co combining states of mind and body to create, if you like, a resourceful state, a state that they can do something that they were not able to do in the past. Now, the trick to this, of course, is number one, is eliciting the state that they actually want. Number two is effectively anchoring it. And number three is utilizing and building that anchor so that when they get to the location called the dentist, whether they're kinesthetically firing that anchor or touching an earlobe or whether they're repeating something to themselves inside their mind or squeezing a ball, whatever their stimulus is to gain the positive response they want, mm. that response has to be strong enough to overcome the response they used to have going to the dentist. <laughs> so uh, Kathleen Neville describes it beautifully that it's like a gladiatorial contest, um, the old anger versus the new, if you like. Um, you want the old anger to be standing there uh, dressed in cardboard armor uh, with, a, with an ice cream as a sword. And then you want your new positive resourceful state to come in with um, lasers and guns and massive techno armor. And it's absolutely no brainer which one's going to win. Uh, so there, there are tricks and tricks and ways and means that you can um, elicit powerful anchors and build those anchors so that you get the stronger and stronger and stronger response that you want. And ideally, before you go into the um, situation, um, uh, another analogy I like to use is um, from the old saying, the horse is already bolted. Well, back in New Zealand, I had horses. And one of the things that uh, I was very aware of, um, and I've seen it gone horribly the wrong way as well, is if you want to sedate a horse to do some work on it um, that needs to be done for a veterinary examination, for example, the sedation would often be given by way of a paste. And you, they, it's a, I don't know, grass or mint flavored taste and they, they squeeze it in their mouth and they go yummy, yummy, yummy. And five minutes later, they start getting quite docile, a muscle relaxant. Um, form of anesthetic. Um, horses, interestingly, um, out of all mammals, uh, a, a horse produces more testosterone than any other animal on the planet. Mm. Like a horse. And for that reason, it's important what to, to administer the paste while the horse is in the relaxed state. Because if the horse starts getting stressed, it gets a massive shot of adrenaline. And mm. once that adrenaline's flowing, the magic paste ain't going to touch it, ain't going to go anywhere near it. And human beings are not too dissimilar in some respects. I mean, we look a little different to horses, but uh, anyone that's uh, either got kids or has been a child knows this. Waiting for the child to get wound up and then trying to calm them down, or adult, quite frankly, takes a lot more work and energy and time than it does to avoid getting wound up in the first place. So rather than waiting for the person to enter the stressful situation, get the negative response, while they are still in that calm state, that's the point to start building. This is what I want to stay as and maintain that feeling rather than waiting for it to go horribly wrong. Um, mm. with, with, uh, with the right anchored response, um, even at that point, yes, uh, people can move and change their, their mind, uh, their brain chemistry and their neurology very, very quickly but the body takes a little time to catch up. You know, we can change our mind that quickly. And I woke up once and I looked in the mirror and went, I'm, I want to lose weight. And I could see exactly what I wanted to look like. But it took a few weeks of diet and exercise to actually get to my, my outside looking like the idea on the inside of my head. Mm -hmm. um, we just have to be aware that, you know, whether it's a neurological change or a complete physiological change, it's going to take a little longer than this than the speed that we can change our mind. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's great. Thank, thanks very much for sharing that. I love the part that you were talking about. You know about going to the dentist, and you're saying that like there, he's there with a cardboard and an ice cream, and the other guy's there. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's that's very well put. Thanks for that. Well, well uh, it's one that unfortunately yeah. too many people to, can relate to. Yeah. I mean, really, uh, anchoring is a phenomenal power, phenomenally powerful tool for teaching people how they can manage their own state yeah, yeah rather than waiting for waiting for things that just happen or always happen to mm. me being yeah. a having a way to be able to take control and put things into a positive routine that gets a reliable result 
Um, it's something spoken about quite a bit by uh, Garner Thompson uh, in his book, Magic in Practice, which is an oh, absolute brilliant read. Um, oh, great. Uh, yeah. Garner Thompson founded the uh, Society of uh, Medical NLP based here in the UK. And he co-wrote that book with uh, Dr. Khaled Khan. And he speaks uh, quite frequently through the book um, about the power of anchoring the usefulness as a skill in medical practice uh, for uh, enabling people to maintain a positive state of mind and body in situations that honestly aren't always terribly wonderful. But not many uh, people go to hospital because they're feeling too good and they want to get better. Uh, it's usually <laughs> negative circumstances. So if people can be taught to something, taught a process that they can feel that they are in control of their body and mind as they are, mm. And it's actually something they can do and, and reliably continue to do for their own benefit. It's very empowering. Yeah, great. Yeah, I must actually put the name of that book in the show notes for people to find as well, Alando. So that's great. That's really good. Thanks for that. Yeah, I know you mentioned dentists as one of the one of the things that they use anchors for. But uh, the next question kind of I, I, I asked that as well. But how do you use, how do you use anchors with people, and what things are the best? Um, to help them with, like I know you mentioned dentists, but what other examples of things have you helped people with um, with the anchors? Well, the anchoring unto itself is a, is a wonderful and powerful tool in saying that it's um, struggling to think of a, a, an area where it's the only tool. Uh, well, no, actually, is a good idea. Um, in sports performance, for example, um, or job interviewing or going into a situation to manage that state, to get in the flow, to get in the zone. Um, some people call it ritual. Some people call it routine. Having a set um, set of processes that you go through um, is often very, very useful to get into the right state of mind. Mm. Well, that in, essence, that in essence is a form of anchoring. <laughs> you can certainly uh, superpower, if you like, that process by... Um, eliciting the state that that particular person wants and uh, making the, the trigger for that anchor, the trigger for that state part of their routine before they go onto the sports field, go in for the job interview, uh, whatever it is that they're working towards doing. Uh, there's an excellent example of this uh, now in many forms of rugby, uh, but uh, obviously uh, with my background, I'm going to reference the All Blacks. Uh, the, the longest serving member of the All Blacks uh, franchise is a fellow by the name of Gordon Inoka. Um, now, he, he's very well known as a um, very well known as being the um, high performance coach for the All Blacks uh, with a background in sports psychology and a few other things. And something that I noticed became very interesting uh, probably about 10 years ago with the All Blacks is each of the players would come onto the field and they all run and fan out. And in that moment, they all have their a little few moments to themselves and some stretch and some seem to be going through routines. But to my eye, it became more and more obvious that they were having time to themselves and they would literally be doing things like, and they would repeat the action over and over and over again. And then they'd all form for the hucker. Now, anyone that's watched rugby um, has at some point seen the All Blacks perform the hucker. It in and of itself is a ritual. It's a routine. Mm. And in Maori tradition, um, it, it was it was used for more than one thing. But as a before going into battle, uh, the Warriors would perform the hucker and it was literally amping them up before their performance. Mm. Now, I, I like to think the Warriors were doing a little bit more than uh, the All Blacks now in a do or die situation. Situation, but uh, the rules of the game have taken care of that. But in many sports now, in tennis, there's a reason that, it, that there's no logical need, as far as I'm aware, to bounce a tennis ball to see if it still bounces before you serve. And different tennis players, some it's one, and it's only ever one. Sometimes they'll bounce it. If they bounce it three times, they'll discard the ball and collect another. Now, I don't think the ball was faulty. <laughs> but it's out of sync for the routine. And these, these little rituals, these little things, uh, they, they become very, very um, important to sports professionals. It's just a great uh, 
example of it. Yeah. Um, but look, it, it goes across to many forms of areas of life and people have different talesmen and uh, they have, uh, you know, like their magic socks that they have to wear to go cycling or yeah. whatever it might be. And the, the, the key to it is when they put the magic socks on, they feel different. Mm. Now, in any top level sport, which is the easiest place to notice it, um, the distinctions, I was speaking to a tennis coach from Brazil uh, several years ago, about five years ago, and he was saying to me that uh, he, he was the coach of, at the time, the number four uh, ladies tennis player in the world. And um, he was saying to me that the physiological difference between the top 100 players was almost insignificant. You know, some were slightly taller, some were slightly more muscular, bigger thighs, bigger arm, whatever it might be. But what one had an advantage over the other, the other had made an advantage out of themselves physiologically. The difference between the top 100 players was that common top two inches. It was the mindset before the game. And this now is common language in all forms of high-level sport. Well, uh, from my experience 20 years ago, uh, as an executive salesperson, if I was feeling particularly on form, then I wanted to see more clients that day. If I was feeling really off form, I would literally rebook my client appointments for another day. Mm. Now, I, I, at the time, I didn't have any further language to explain on form and off form. But when I started learning NLP, um, I, I was still in executive sales at the time. What I started looking for was what made the difference to when I was in form. And <clears throat> more importantly, I would sit down and I would put myself into an altered state of consciousness. I basically close my eyes and viscerally remember days where I'd had high levels of success starting the day and throughout the day. And I would reacquaint myself with how I felt, how I was thinking, how I was feeling, everything, how I was moving and walking and talking. And I would literally anchor that by doing this on my arms. I literally just squeeze my, my wrists. And then my, the practice, of course, was uh, in the morning, either before I got in the car to drive to the office so I could think about work on the way, or after I'd stopped to get my breakfast burrito or whatever it was, um, I would literally stop and I would do this several times to start building up the resourceful state that I wanted to be in. Now, that in all of it, uh, sorry, that and other skills that I was incorporating in language and uh, communicating with uh, clients and, and with co-workers, I had a very quick upsurge in my sales performance. And it wasn't just a fluke, it just continued. And um, yeah, that, that was a, a wonderful result, obviously, to have. Um, but what more importantly, it, in, in light of what we're talking about this evening, get, being able to be in your optimal state of mind and body to do any activity, quite frankly, is always a good idea. Anchoring is one of the ways that you can create that mind-body switch to turn on and be in that zone that you really want to be in. Yeah, that's great, Orlando. Great, because it's actually funny because I remember even before I ever heard of anchoring, I was out for a run one, one day with a friend and he said to me, I looked like I looked at it like I had enough, you know, and he said to me, um, if you squeeze your finger and your thumb together, um, it'll make you relax, you know. And I did it like, and, it, and lo and behold, it did make me relax, you know. I didn't have a clue, it's but, I, but I, I continue to do that sometimes when I'm running and actually makes you relax. So that, that's that's great, that's great. Yeah. Well, very, I mean, yeah, but in that particular situation, quite frankly, uh, getting you to relax is more the power. The, the initial comment that he made was the power of suggestion when he suggested to you that this would this would create that effect. You yeah. gave it a go and obviously had some kind of respect or belief in the guy. Yeah. And so that elicited a relaxed response. Well, the more you practice it, the more that you get it. Um, you know, anchoring is a, it's a skill that all of us possess because we've all done it through our lives in one shape, one way, shape or form or another. Being Bringing it into conscious awareness, practicing it with intent and then having it flow more into your unconscious um, awareness, you'll find that you begin using the process of anchoring by being aware of what state are people in all around me and when could that be useful. For example, in sales, um, 
if a client has a particularly adverse reaction when you walk in the door because they're having a bad day, it's not a bad idea to either visually or uh, auditorially anchor that. For example, I, if I was talking to a client and they say, I know your listeners won't see this, but I'll explain what I'm doing. Uh, if I walked into a client and I could see they're in a really foul mood, I'd say something to them almost to wind them up like, geez, you look happy today. And when they look up, I'd wave with my left hand. And then I'd say to them, uh, I would speak to them to move them away from that feeling. I'd ask them about something. I'd turn the story towards or the conversation towards something that was going particularly well for them. And I'd say, well, that's much better. But I'd give them a thumbs up with my right hand, not my left. And then a few minutes later, I might say, look, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave this contract for you to think about. You make the best decision you can while using the same stimulus that I was using when they were feeling really good. Wow. However, if they mention the competition, then I'll also mention the competition. I'll, and I wave my left hand and shake my head and say, well, <laughs> yeah, if you think that's a good decision. <laughs> that's yeah. None of this, I mean, this is all great, greatly entertaining stuff and none of it on its own. I mean, I never walked into a client's office and waved my left hand twice and gave one thumbs up and they signed a contract. I mean, that's just bullshit. That's just never happened. But by the results that I was getting, where my sales figures went from a close rate of around 50 to 60% to an average of 80%. And they did that over about a two to three month period. And they stayed there for the next two years. I worked at that company. Right. Now that's not a coincidence. No. It had to have something to do. I mean, you might strike it lucky for a week or a day or a month at best, but to have that consistency, you've got to be doing something. And I was, what I was doing, I was doing with intent. And that's the joy of NLP is um, the majority of the, or the all of the processes uh, the effect of modeling, and that is being able to um, find out how someone's doing something very effectively and then be able to re re um, replicate what they're doing in such a fashion that you can get similar results. It's a study of excellence, and it's, uh, it's a good plan. Great. <laughs> great. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that story. That's, that's great. <laughs> With it. <laughs> Quite stuff, but uh, no, um, you know, <laughs> the, the process like I, I know we talked about dentists and people like have, have phobias of aircraft and not happy with that. Like, how would you kind of start the process yourself? If you just say, I had a client and you were going to use the anchoring technique, how would you start that process? Um, Orlando? well, the very first thing I do with all of my clients is, um, I I have a conversation with them, yeah. which usually involves me. Um, I know this is hard, maybe hard for your listeners to believe because I haven't shut up in three, three episodes, but it involves me asking questions and then letting the client speak. It's gaining information. The, the types of questions that I'm asking, I want to know how the person, fear of flying, for example, how do they know to be afraid? When do they know to be afraid? What conditions have to occur for the fear to start? And when the fear starts, what do they mean by that? Is it when they say, well, I get afraid. Well, where, where do you get one? Where are these frays? Do you just get the one frayed, afraid, or you do, do you get lots of frays? You know, now I, I'm constant, constantly joking around with it because from, from the first question, from the first comment that I'm making with a client, I'm quite happy to disrupt the pattern that's not working for them. But I do want to know what the pattern is because um, you know, people that are afraid of flying or, or afraid of anything, quite frankly, some people need the, the stimulus to be occurring on the outside for their fear to, to work properly. Mm. Other people can just think about it and make themselves afraid really, really quickly. Just the, when I say think about it, they're both thinking about it, but um, if I, if you had a fear of flying and if, if I said to you, well, let's talk about flying for some people, that's enough to generate the fear. Mm. Other people go, well, no, it doesn't work like that. But if I'm walking towards the aircraft and you can actually see their whole body change when they start describing how they would have to be doing it, they begin doing it in their imagination and they generate the fear. 
So what I want to know is what are they doing in their imagination? What, how are they doing it? Um, you know, it's not about we, we, when a client says, I'm afraid of uh, flying. Well, are you? Well, is it the fear of flying? What's going on? One, one lady I'm thinking of in particular, um, she, she had, I, I wasn't sure if she, I'm not sure if it was a family member or if it was just a movie, but she saw an airplane crash. And for her, that created the thought, go on an airplane, that could happen. So when you go to an airplane, think of that, think of that, think of that. Well, if every time I thought about getting into an airplane, all I could see is it smashing into the ground in a ball of flame and charred bodies and ah, I probably wouldn't be too keen on the idea either. But when I walk onto an airplane, two thoughts go into my mind. Number one, captive audience. <laughs> Whoever I'm sitting next to, better like to better like listen. <laughs> and the the other thing I, I think about is um you know the reality a lot of the flights i've taken have been international flights with three four hundred five hundred people on the airplane and you know i know statistically there's going to be a number of people on that airplane that are afraid of flying now depending on the mood that i'm in if i feel like interacting with people um i'll actually say something to the air hostess you know, when they come, well, sorry, the air crew as they come past, male or females are relevant, as they come past, you know, when they say, would you, do you need anything or checking your seatbelts? So I say, do you need anything? I say, no, but if you have anyone terrified of flying, let me know. I've got a few hours spare. They say, oh, why is that? And I say, well, amongst other things, I'm a hypnotist. Um, finds it's very useful that when people relax deeply instead of getting wound up. Um, for a lot of air crew, that's music to their ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know i've met and chatted away to a numerous number of people in my life and seats beside me and then halfway through the flight they've, they've turned around and said well I, I i don't mind flying anymore you know, i wonder what happened anyway what's on, what's the next movie on <laughs> hopefully it's not plane crash but <laughs> but um you know how can you use anchors for that well you know in, in every piece of work that i do with any client or group, um, I'm very aware, I'm very conscious of the anchors that I'm using, and I'm con consciously, sorry, constantly looking for opportunities for when people are in a particularly good state. I, I want to anchor that. I want to be able to, I want to be able to help them replicate that good feeling, mm -hmm. especially in a training uh, environment which I think working with clients is, and in NLP is, it's not therapy, it's education. I mean, you're just teaching people how to use their thought processes, their brain differently. Um, when I'm working with people individually in a group, I find the more they laugh and the more they smile, the faster they learn. It just mm. seems to be the way it is. Now, uh, I'm not a neuroscientist. I understand some of the uh, the terminology and neurochemicals, et cetera, and exciters and inhibitors that are going on. But I'm more, where I come from is uh, I know that from my experience, when I'm working with people that are laughing and having a good time, they seem to get it a lot faster. Yeah. It's a lot clearer to them, a lot easier, and I have to do a lot less talking for them to get the result. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in anything that I can do to take the complexity that is, is human beings and create simple solutions to those complex problems rather than looking for more complexity. It just seems to, that just seems to be more confusing to me. So if I get the opportunity to get a group or get an individual smiling or laughing or giggling or calming down or relaxing, I'll give them a direct suggestion that, if, for example, if the client goes, Oh, I think I've had enough of my problem. And they just relax and they, they're almost resigned to having enough and they're, and they're in that moment of relaxation. I'll do, depending if I'm live or online, I'll say something, I'll make a movement, I'll do something to mark that moment. And I'll keep reminding of them of that moment. I'll say, well, it's, uh, you're almost as relaxed as you were a few minutes ago, or do you feel even more relaxed now? Now, you can, you can hide anchors inside things. You can get people nodding, and then you can get them smiling, and then you can mark that moment, can't you, Mark? 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what, yeah. They're sneaky things, these anchors. They're hiding everywhere in plain sight. Um, and, you know, be, being aware of how you can influence other people with the sounds you make, the movements you make, even your simple physical presence. Um, you know, each person that you see is a visual anchor for you, you know, and it, it gives you a visceral response and then you have ideas on how to behave. You know, when, when I, uh, he's on the other side of the world, so it's not that often, but when I do see my dad, I, I get a certain uh, criteria of behavior come to mind. <laughs> and it's a little different to when I'm with my mates. And I think that's a good thing, being able to sort the difference. But um, when you when we're aware of what's causing these criteria, what's causing this mind and body uh, feeling and response, we can begin to use it as usefully as we want in any place that we want in our lives. Um, a great example is uh, you know, young young people who uh, who have a um, uh, what do they call it? A, a social anxiety or an anxiety towards something. When they learn how to how it's actually happening in their body, and they learn a process, and they anchor that feeling of going the other way and feeling better. Now, it, it might have been with one particular area of school or social, but when they go to their exams, they can do exactly the same process, and they can be in control. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. You know, that's great. Um, you've already given the, the, the listeners a lot of takeaways today, Alanda. That's, that's brilliant. Because um, I was going to maybe ask you about for, for like people that haven't heard of anchors before. Um, could you maybe give them a, a, a short takeaway like of, um, of how they could use anchors themselves? Like, you know. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the uh, a very crude but uh, effective way of doing it is to take a moment to just wander through your memories and seek things that you really enjoy. For example, uh, one of my favorites is the smell of uh, fresh cut grass. I love the smell of cut grass or the smell of walking through the forest. Uh, another one for me is driving, this won't mean anything to you, but driving down the Narranga Gorge and this is coming on the entry to Wellington City, and there's a moment where the hills part, and you can see the, the Wellington Harbour and the city, and there's an immensely peaceful feeling of being at home. Well, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, you, you chose to leave New Zealand in your, in your early 40s and travel around the world and then decided to stay. Don't you ever get homesick? And I said, no. The, the home that I grew up in was Wellington City, but I haven't actually lived there for 25 years. I've been around a lot of different places in between then. I can go home in two or three seconds and I can feel that feeling and be completely attached to it and feel really good and carry on. So I wonder for the listeners in your own life, think back through your memories and find a time where you felt really good. And take the time to just close your eyes, visualize it entirely, listen to what was happening around you. How did you sound? How did other people sound? How did you feel and where did you feel that feeling in your body first? And as that feeling grew in positive ways, how did it move around your body? What could you smell? What could you see? What could you hear? And keep repeating those different, uh, seeking those different things distinctions in uh, your representation system that is in your uh, visual, your auditory, your kinesthetic, flactory, and gustatory. What could you see? What could you hear? What could you feel? By going over and over and enhancing small areas of that memory will build that feeling. And as that feeling, as you get the feeling in your body that you want, then do a particular action or say something to yourself, repeat a word that you want to, if it's about uh, driving down the Ringer Gorge, when I see the when I see the uh, the harbour opening up and I see the city there and I can see the motorway going out, I literally think of the word home, and I think of it and it sounds like home, and it's the same tone of voice, it's the same picture every single time, and it simply gets more and more vivid, and if you practice that enough, you will be able to carry that good feeling 
with you wherever you go for the rest of your life. That's great, Orlando. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks very much for that. That's a great takeaway for people. And actually never heard of Anchors before. That, that's great. Thanks very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, very that, well. sounds, that sounds like a lovely place to have to visit New Zealand someday. Yeah, yeah. she's not a bad couple of islands, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you built, built a lovely picture there. Lovely picture. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm going to maybe ask you a few questions I got in from a, a listener, um, Tony Gordon. Um, sure. he, he just wanted me to ask a few questions. Is that's okay? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, thanks a million for come, uh, being on it, guest on again. It's great. Um, <laughs> so um, can you give a few examples where anchoring can be used? We kind of kind of covered that already, didn't we? Really, we we you kind of gave that answer already, really, didn't you? Well, well, I think so. Um, yeah. where, where can to me anchoring can be used where there's at least one brain involved in any communication. Yeah. So whether it's yourself on your own or with other people or with a group, um, you can choose to be aware of what triggers already exist and what responses you're getting. And then you can choose to be aware from your past of what responses you've had, that is, what feelings that were useful that you've had, and either what triggered it at the time, repeating that, or creating a new trigger to get that response. And... Uh, I, I think it's a wonderful skill to, uh, an absolutely wonderful skill to use for yourself and anyone that's married or has a partner of any way, shape or form uh, or children, use it with them, you know, um, find ways to make the other pe person feel good for no reason whatsoever. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, great. That, that's great. Thanks. Thanks for answering that for, for Tony. And the next question he was asking um was uh, can you give a few examples where anchoring can be used? I think you, was I that think, not I was sorry, mate. <laughs> we're, we're, we're mixing up the questions here. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so, what are what are the, what what are the ways to initiate an anchor? Uh, to initiate well, to initiate an anchor, um, I. I the, the language there to initiate an anchor to either set it up or to trigger it. Um, you effectively, you can do it in any of the five senses of the body, um, um, uh, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory, or smell and taste. Um, you, how else can you initiate it? Um, an anchors can be spatial. You can have spatial anchoring. You can chain anchors together. Um, but really it, it's, I think I'm, I'm giving you a very long-winded answer to a short, short, short answer question. Um, utilizing an external stimulus um, with any sense of the body is the easiest way to kick off. Yeah, that's great. That's great, Orlando. Thanks very much for that. And and lastly, um, in what cases will anchor will an anchor not work? Um, for example, if a client has an overwhelming, overwhelming and intense fear or dread. Okay, well, that, that very much gets back to that gladiator uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, competition. If a client has an overwhelming uh, sense, was it a sense of fear or dread, was it? Yeah, fear of, or dread, yeah. yeah. An overwhelming sense of fear or dread. Um, to me, it, anchoring is certainly part of the process that I would use with that client um, uh, purely because it's part of the process with every client that wants a positive result wants it to stick however um my initial question that's coming to my mind is how is it overwhelming and overwhelming is just a, a thing about that yeah something that's overwhelming seems to be something that's over top of the person now it might only be in their imagination but that's kind of where the thinking's happening or the remembering's happening um, so I would look at, I'd be wanting to make changes, uh, or at least have them try on a few changes in the way they're thinking about it. This thing that's overwhelming them, if, if it is over the top of them, well, what happens if they imagine standing on top of it and looking at it from a different perspective? Um, now that in of itself has the ability to create an anchor, 
before I'm before I'd be wanting to help a client lock in a solution, I want to be I want to be testing with the client to make sure it's the solution they actually want. You know, is this getting you what you want? Um, and again, the, the first question's got to be, I mean, this goes back into, uh, this is rewinding into um, the beginning of every session, asking a client what they want and then forming a well-formed outcome that has certain criteria that we might talk about another time. Yeah, great. Uh, but if a client says, I have an overwhelming fear or dread, you could ask them of what, but that's really not going to help you with a solution. Mm. Um, as long as it's an overwhelming fear of dread or something that's not actually happening right now. You know, um, I'm not in the business of helping people ignore physical abuse, for example, get them out, make sure the client's safe and then help them forget the past or change or, re or think differently about the past. But making sure people are safe in the interim is the primary number one concern always. Um, but if, if a client has an overwhelming fear or dread, I want to know from the client in the situation where you have the overwhelming fear or dread, how do you want to feel and is it appropriate? Now, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I come from a little country called New Zealand and we've got a great big country next to us called Australia. And uh, New Zealand has no snakes. It just doesn't. We just, we just don't have them. Uh, Northern Australia, um, Queensland, has nine of the top 10 deadliest snakes in the world. Now, if someone describes to me that they have an overwhelming fear of snakes, my first question is going to be, do you know anything about snakes? And is it appropriate for you to be afraid? Now, I don't know a hell of a lot about snakes. I certainly have no, uh, I don't have a phobic response or I'm not particularly afraid of them. Doesn't mean I'm going to go and pick it up. You know, we're not in the, we're not in the business of helping people get dumber, you know, mm. or dead. <laughs> yeah. Also, because that can happen. But, you know, if someone has... Uh, an overwhelming fear or dread of traffic that disenables them to walk out of their house. All right, I'm going to say that might be a bit inappropriate. If they have an overwhelming unders, uh, an overwhelming dread of lying down on the M3 at two o'clock in the morning, I think that's a good plan. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not where you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, laying down in a prone position. So I'm going to want to know more about it and more importantly, what the client wants as a response. Because not every client that has a fear or overwhelming dread of something wants to necessarily be best friends with it. Mm -hmm. They may just want to reduce it. They may want to change it. And I'm not going to know that until I ask them what they want. And when mm -hmm. they've told me what they want, funny enough, uh, when they've told me what they want, I'm going to test it to make sure it's completely appropriate in their model of the world. And when I'm convinced and they're convinced this is exactly what we want, I'm then going to go with them looking back at their past for when they've had this resource in their life. So if they have an overwhelming dread and the appropriate response is to be calm and confident, I'm going to work with the client to find a time in their life. Context is irrelevant. It's the mental and physical state that we want. We're going to find a time where they have been supremely calm or at least calm. Once we've got that calm feeling, we can build that up and there's other skills for doing that. Then we're going to go and we're going to anchor that, for example. It might not be on the hand. It could be multiple different ways. Usually I'll anchor it in more than one rep system. So I might go, oh, relax. So I'm, I'm making a sound and a physiological movement at the same time. And they can also see my hand coming. I'm obviously doing this to myself. Um, but that way you're engaging more than one sensory awareness creating a synesthesia that is an overlapping of senses so it gets coded in even more strongly than just some than simply through one um but we're going to do that for calm then we're going to do it with the same thing the same anchoring process for confidence so we're effectively putting calm and confidence together and why are we doing that because that's what the client found is most appropriate for them once i've got that state anchored then we're going to look at this guy over here and go, what do we need to change to weaken this one while we strengthen this one? And when this one's strong enough and this one's weak enough, we're going to dog wallop it. And that's the end of it. And that, in essence, is a very common process um, with many of the clients that I spend time with. Uh, there's lots of ways of going about that. There's lots of different ways that you can anchor it. 
uh, and ways that you can build those anchors and reduce those anchors. Uh, but as a very, as a nutshell approach to what you're trying to achieve, at the end of the day, it's about finding if the client is here now, where do they want to be? What, what do they want as an outcome? Does it work in all areas of their life? Is it something they can do themselves um, and they can test and know when they've been successful so they can stop doing it and get on with something else in their life? Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for yeah, the welfare outcome sounds like the way that that's that's really good. Thanks a lot for answering uh, Tony's questions there. That's really good. And um, yeah, so and thanks a lot, Tony, for sending the questions as well. And, Absolutely, um, good questions. Yes, Tony. Yeah, yeah. and um, if anybody else wants to ask Orlando any questions over the next couple of weeks, you can email me at marklestrange eleven at hotmail dot com. M a r k l e s t r a n g e eleven at hotmail dot com. So this has been great talking to you, Orlando, today on anchoring. And um, I think it might be something to do with St. Patrick that took the, kept the snakes out of New Zealand as well as, as Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, because <laughs> it suits us pretty well. <laughs> us too, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Thanks a million, Orlando. It was great. And um, if you like, maybe next week we might talk um, about uh, mindfulness. If, 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 would that be okay? I'm sure we could do that. Yeah, okay, that, that's great. So uh, tune in next Thursday for another episode with Orlando. So, Kato, so thanks for meeting again, Orlando. You're very welcome, Mark. Take care. Thank you, Thank everyone. You. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in today's podcast, Mark's Motivational Podcast with your host, Mark Strange. That was an interview again with Orlando Zucchetto around anchoring. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks a lot for tuning in again. Uh, so next Thursday, we're going to be talking around well-formed outcomes. And um, yeah, well-formed outcomes and goals that people set. So uh, stay tuned for that next Thursday. And in between that, we're going to have another um, uh, author on Authors Tuesday. So listen, thanks a lot for tuning in. Go to me and I'm all good. Good boy, it's long and full.